Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Originally, I planned to get back onto our series, uh, The Truths We Confess, and finish that. I had been studying. And uh, last night, there was a, a bunch of people. I saw this, this guy on the girls had a tackled uh, somebody. And then, uh, Conscious about breathing. They had to give him CPR for about 10 minutes, and um, he, he's still unconscious. They don't know whether he's going to live. Uh, there's all different stories going around about the cause or whatever. And um, some of the stuff that was being said about it, and I'm uh, trying to start the game and things like that afterwards, I had a hard time dealing with, and it really brought back a bunch of the memories that. I went through playing football and some of the experiences I had. And I like to say today I was having a really hard time concentrating and trying to figure out how I want to outline what we were going to talk about. And so I decided uh, just to cover something else tonight. So tonight we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, can you open to Isaiah chapter 6? I'd appreciate it if you guys could keep me in prayer for that. I uh, was having a hard time with it, and, you know, again, it felt like a lot of these things were like fresh wounds, and, um, yeah, just really feel for this guy. So uh, I would appreciate it, yeah, if you could pray for me for that. Uh, but I think Isaiah 6 is a good place for us to be tonight. Um, this month... Uh, we have a few things going on. Um, but nothing pressing, so I'll let you guys know about that next week when we get a, a few more details. Our goal is to have some kind of activity each month outside of the church. So we've got a few people planning that. And so uh, towards the end of the month, I'm sure we'll have something to do. Uh, but Isaiah chapter 6. I don't know uh, if you guys know this. Today we had our Congress, our newly elected Congress, was voting and trying to come up with a Speaker of the House. And it went through, uh, how many rounds of votes has it gone through, Ryan? Yeah. I know we've gone through at least three rounds, and, and we don't have a Speaker. There's been uh, McCarthy, the guy that is the guy that's supposed to get it from the Republican Party. He needs basically all but five of the Republicans to vote for him. But we are, uh, I think he's about 20-something votes short. So it's kind of up in the air what's going to happen as far as our government. There's a possibility that Nancy Pelosi will just have to appoint a seat holder until they could figure it all out. And so even with the Republicans winning back the House, the majority in the House of Representatives, the Democrats still could potentially be in control of it. And I bring that up because the passage that we're looking at tonight in Isaiah 6, that is the basis for what's going on. The government of Israel at the time is uh, in a, a change, and, and it's unstable, and, and nobody knows what's going to happen. 
And that was a scary thing. Because if you read through the books of the kings, first and second kings and first and second chronicles, you see that the majority of the rulers weren't very good. <laughs> they were actually really bad and took Israel into a bad place. So they had, had just had a good ruler, a fairly good ruler, this guy named Uzziah, and he died, and now there's going to be a new king, and all of Israel is, is worried. What's going to happen? We don't know what our fate is going to be. And that's where we're going to pick up in this passage. But Uzziah, or Azariah, he reigned for 51 years in Judah. He was one of the longest reigning kings in all of the monarchy. And he was considered one of the best of, of all the kings of Israel, or, or of Judah especially, especially after David and Solomon. Uzziah was one of the top guys. And Second Chronicles chapter 26 is where you could read about Uzziah and all that he did for Israel. But in verses 3 through 5, it says this. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he was right in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and here's the key, and as long as he sought Yahweh, God made him successful. And he was very successful for a time. The uh, commerce was great under his reign. They had a, a great economy. He had brought this mining industry uh, and, and made it flourish again in Israel. Uh, farming was very prosperous under him. Uh, trade expanded. They started trading with all kinds of different partners that they didn't have before. And their military grew strong and mighty under Isaiah. So things were pretty good with him. Times were prosperous. People were happy. But if you go about halfway down in Second Chronicles 26, it then says this. And he made devices in Jerusalem, invented by skillful men, to be the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and large stones, so his fame spread far and wide. For he was marvelously helped until he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his own destruction, for he transgressed against God and the Lord his God by entering into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of Yahweh, men of valor. And they stood against Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to Yahweh, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are set apart as holy to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from Yahweh. God. But Uzziah, with the censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of Yahweh, beside the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself hastened to get out, because Yahweh had smitten him. So King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, 
He was cut off from the house of Yahweh, and Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to the last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So Isaiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. For they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. So he gets terminal leprosy for being unfaithful to the Lord. Now, what I want you guys to know is uh, Isaiah, the prophet, he had a, a relationship with Uzziah. He was friends with Uzziah. For 50 years, he had been prophesying and ministering to Uzziah. And now all of a sudden, his friend, who was this great king, who was very successful, went and did something really foolish and got the judgment of God, became a leper and was excluded from being king. He was excluded from the worship of God. He had to live secluded in a house by himself. And no doubt, Uzziah, I'm sorry, no doubt Isaiah was completely crushed by this. No doubt his heart was torn. No doubt he was just undone because of what had happened to his friend and to the king and the uncertainty of what's going to happen with the nation of Israel. So Isaiah 6, this is where we pick up. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and two of them he covered his face, and with two of them he covered his feet, and with two of them he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity, iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. God, I thank you that as unstable as governments could be and as unstable as rulers could be and as uncertain as their lives are, I thank you that you're sitting on the throne and we have a forever king, a forever priest, a, a forever prophet in you. I thank you that you've given us this story, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would encourage us, that you'd edify us and that you'd comfort us with it, Lord. But I pray most of all that we would see you as this prophet saw you. We'd see your glory, and we'd realize that we need your grace. And I pray that as we do, we would receive your grace, we'd be healed by you, and that you would commission us to serve you and to witness for you in this last world, Lord. So we thank you. Uh, we commit tonight's study to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've entitled this, Our One Stable King. Right? Now, one, most of the kings in the world today aren't really stable people. 
<laughs> kind of all over the place and uh, not the definition of stability. And then you see how vulnerable governments are, how fast one guy could come out of power and another. And so here we see that we have one stable king. So the first fill-in put in, there is a truly righteous king on the throne. Right? That's what Isaiah saw here in verse 1. He goes into the temple and, you know, there's a vacancy on the throne of Israel. But he sees that there is one on the throne of heaven who's ruling over everything, and that is the Lord. You know, Uzziah was a pretty good king, but he was fraud. He made a mistake. And even the best of things on earth are meant to leave us wanting more. As good of a king as Uzziah was, it leaves us wanting somebody better. Like, we want a king that's not going to blow it, and that's not going to put the whole nation into peril and into distress. And, and, and really, that's what life is here. That everything, no matter what in this life, in some way is meant to come up short. Every relationship, everything that we, we, we go through, our government, it's, it's meant to fail. It's meant to leave us wanting more. Because that more is God. It's meant to lead us to God. No matter how great of a parent you had, how great of a dad, he's going to fail you at some point, and it's going to leave you wanting a truly righteous father. He's going to leave you wanting the Lord. No matter how good of a governor or a president you have, he's going to fail, and it's going to leave you wanting more. And that's what we see on the throne here of heaven is Jesus. The reality is, is we have a king of kings, and he's ruling, and his plan is going exactly as planned. How do I know it's going exactly as planned? Well, Ephesians 1.11 tells us, In him we have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. God's working everything after the counsel of his will. It's predetermined. It's happening. Everything that's happening is happening exactly the way that the king of kings wants it to. He's sitting on his throne. He's ruling it. He has a purpose for what we're going through, and it's going exactly the way he wants it to go. And we could take comfort in that. We could take comfort in it because we could look at the character of the king, and we could say he's a good king. He's a holy king. He's a king who loves me. He's a king who came and died on a cross for me. And if he did that, how much more will he not freely give me all things? So when things aren't going the way we want, we could trust that God works all things together for our good. He has a purpose for what I'm going through. And he's accomplishing it. And he will accomplish it. There's nothing that's going to thwart him. So point number one, fill in. We need to follow the prophet's example. So fill in the word example. Look at verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. You know, when times are bad, we need to go to the temple. We need to go to church. This is often the time that we don't want to do that, right? When we're struggling, when things are hard, when things are bad. It's like, I want to just hang out by myself. I don't want to go around God's people. You know, they're going to be singing. They're going to be happy. That's not where I want to be. But that is exactly where we need to be. Now, there's some debate about this verse. 
Did Isaiah actually go to the temple? Or did he have a vision of the heavenly temple and see the Lord sitting on his throne? My answer is yes. I believe he actually went to the temple, and when he was in God's house in the temple, he got the revelation of heaven where he saw the throne of God. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. When things aren't looking good, we need to look to heaven. And Isaiah does just that. He goes to the temple, and he sees Jesus. And we know that it's Jesus that he sees because we're told so in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus, he's at a town called Bethany. Uh, he's there. He was just having a feast at Mary and Martha's house. Remember, he's reclining at the table with Lazarus. And all these people are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they hear that Jesus is at Bethany with Lazarus. And they're like, hey, we got to check this out. This guy rose from the dead. And so they start going to Bethany. And this group of Greeks comes, and they find Philip, and they're like, hey, we want to meet this Jesus guy. And so they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus starts preaching to him. And Jesus starts preaching the cross before he went to the cross to them. And then he says this in John 12, starting in verse 37. He says, but though he had done many signs before them, they still weren't believing in him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. This is exactly out of this passage. If you go on and look at verses 9 and 10, you'll see that's exactly what was quoted in John chapter 12. But it says that Isaiah saw his glory. Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus, and it's right here in the temple. We need to remember that Jesus is still on the throne. And, and to do this, we, we really need God's word. We need God's revelation. We need an eternal perspective to keep that in our mind. We're, we're living in evil days, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says the days are evil. We're living in a fallen world, and things aren't going to go the way that we want. There's everything in this world is trying to keep us from having faith in Jesus, from trusting Jesus, from seeing things from the eternal perspective. And so the only way that we're going to see things rightly, the only way we're going to remember that God is in charge, that God is working out his plan, is if we're constantly being reminded of, by it in, in the word. That's why Paul tells us that we need to have our minds renewed by the word of God. Otherwise, we're just going to be conformed to this world in Romans chapter 12. But we need that perspective. Right? It, it, that was exactly my testimony. You know, I I got saved in a rather unique way. I got saved kind of by myself, sitting on the toilet. <laughs> and, uh, and then all of a sudden, things got really hard in my life. About three months after that, I started hurt my arm again. I had a surgery. I got sick. And over about the next five years, I had 15 surgeries. I was in and out of the hospital, almost died a bunch of times. You know, it was really, really sick. 
And the first year of that was, was super hard. All I could think about was how bad I hated life. I wanted to die. I, 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 I couldn't see anything good happening. I was completely miserable and alone. Well, then I went to a Bible study, and I started making friends, and really just fell in love with the Word of God. And I started spending the day reading the Bible rather than watching uh, Breaking Bad or shows like that. And as I'm reading the Bible, something happened. You know, my circumstances kept getting worse, but all of a sudden I started seeing things kind of the way that God was. And I started seeing that God was working in my life. I started seeing that God was using this, what I was going through, in the for good, that he had a purpose for it, that he was drawing me closer to him. He was making me more like Jesus. He was even working in the people around his life to make them more like Jesus and to draw them to himself. You see, all of a sudden I had a, a totally different perspective on the thing that I was going through. And that's always happening. It, it, it really is. That's why when Joseph meets his brothers, and, and, and they think that they, he, he's going to kill him because dad's dead, and what they did to him, he says, no. What the world meant for evil, God used for good. And if you're a believer, God is doing that. God's working all things together for your good. The problem is, is we just don't see it. But if we're in the world, we'll have that perspective, and we'll start to be able to see what God is doing, and that will give us peace. So, so we need the Bible. We really need to be in the scriptures to have that kind of peace. But we also need each other. We, we need to come to church. We need that corporate fellowship, right? First uh, Corinthians 10.13, a verse we all love. Pastor Bob just used this verse uh, not too long ago. Right? It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We love that, right? Hey, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. You know, he's, he's going to give you an escape, right? You, but often it feels like God has given us a whole lot more than we can handle. But we forget that this isn't written to individuals. This is written to a church. It's a plural you. And on your own, yeah, it's way more than you could handle. But when you have your brothers and sisters with you bearing your burdens and praying for you and, and walking through that season with you, then no, it, it's not more than you can handle. We need to carry each other's burdens. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5, right? That we need to carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, As you come to him, a living stone... Rejected my men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. I love this picture, right? He's saying that, hey, we're, we're, we're these little stones, right? And, and God is taking us as these living stones, and he's building us up into his holy sanctuary. He's building us up into his temple. Right? But if you go look at a building that's made out of stones or bricks, you notice something. These stones or these bricks, they're not just hanging out independent of each other. They're not just floating in space. No, they're stacked on top of each other. And every stone is holding another stone in place. It's supporting that stone. It, it, it's holding that stone where it's supposed to be. It's keeping that stone in line with the chief cornerstone. And that is exactly what happens when we come to church and we're in fellowship. 
we keep each other in line with the chief cornerstone. You know, we all have gifts, and we need to use them ministering to each other. That's why God has given them to us. Some of you have the gift of encouragement. And days like today, I need someone to come and encourage me. I was here earlier. I was printing out our notes for tonight, and Pastor Ken came by, and, 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 and he stopped, and he said something to me out of the blue, and it was just so encouraging. And, and I needed to hear that at that time. Well, if I didn't come to church, if I wasn't in this building, I probably wouldn't have got that. Some of you guys have the gift of prophecy. And you're going to speak a word of God, and you're going to say it at the perfect moment. It's going to be exactly what somebody needs to hear. Some of you guys have the gift of mercy. And people are going to be hurting, and you're going to come along, and you're going to be able to comfort them like nobody else can. Some of you guys have the gift of giving. And, and you know, you're going to be able to give to somebody, whether it's time or finances, whatever it is. And you're going to be able to help somebody who's in need that, that's going to show them the love of Jesus and point them to Jesus in a way that nobody else can. Or, or, or the gift of service. You know, that's not really some gift that everybody says they want. But, but whenever you need something, I, all the time I have people telling me, hey, I need help. I need somebody with the gift of service to come and help me do whatever it is I need to do. You know, you're more valuable than you think. We're the gift of teaching. The idea is, is we all have a gift, and we need to use it in encouraging and strengthening each other. That's what Peter says. He says, as each one of you has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Think about this. He's saying you need to be a good steward of the gift God gave you. Jesus gave a parable where he talked about these got three guys that got minas or talents, remember? And one guy had five minas, and he went out and made five more with those minas. And Jesus is like, well done, good and faithful servant, entering into my place of rest. And another one had doubled his minas. And then the last guy said, hey, you know, I, I had one mina, and I'm, I'm afraid of you. You know, you reap where you didn't sow, and so I just went and buried it. And here's your mina back. And what does Jesus say? You worthless and slothful slave. You know, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And I think some of us, we're going to have a hard time, right? We're going to have to answer to Jesus, hey, how come you didn't do anything with the gift that I have given you? You know, when you skip out on church, when we skip corporate worship, we're in effect robbing other believers of Christ's gift to them. Have you thought about that? When you decide, hey, you know what, I'm just not going to go to church. There's somebody at church who's hurting that God wants to use the gift that he's placed in you to bless them with, and you're robbing that person of that gift. That is the, the reality. We need to stop thinking about going to church as something that we could get out of it and more in the terms of what can we bring to it. What can we bring and give to others and bless others with by our presence? You know, in Matthew chapter 20, the disciples are mad because James and John, they have their mom, 
you go to Jesus and say, hey, you know, in the resurrection, could you have my two sons sit on your two sides, one on the right hand and one on the left hand? <laughs> and, to, and to make matters worse, the disciples do that, the other disciples, right? And, and then they all start arguing about who's going to be the greatest, right? No, I'm going to be better in the right, you know, I'm... And then Jesus says this, but Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know, let the rulers of the Gentile lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The, the one who's going to be the greatest is the one who is the most humble and the greatest servant. Right? And so that's the attitude that God wants us to have. And especially when we're hurting, right? There's no greater thing you could do when you're distressed, when you're anxious, when you're hurting, to alleviate that than start serving other people. It, it, it really is. I mean, you could sit there at home and think about how sorry you are and, wow, this stinks and going through this, I'm so miserable. You could sit there and, and, and even just pray about it over and over and kind of just worry on your knees. Or you could go and start caring for other people, start serving other people, start praying for other people. And I guarantee you, you're going to feel a hundred times better. Did you know that it wasn't until Job prayed for his three miserable friends that he got healed, that he got restored? It wasn't when he was crying out and asking God to heal himself. No, it was when he actually prayed for the three people who had been hurting him <laughs> for however long that God healed him. So all this to say that, hey, when things are distressful, when uncertain, when we're hurting, the place that we need to be is in the church with God's people. So Isaiah was shaken by what happened. He was grieved and he was distressed, but he went to God's house to meet with the Lord and to serve God's people. Point number two, we need to follow the angels' example. So fill in the word angels. In verse two it says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, they flew. These angels are called seraphs. Now, that word's kind of a, a hard word to define, uh, but the consensus is it, it means something like flaming ones or, or burning ones. And the idea is, is that they were so near to the glory and presence of God that they were burning with zeal for God and were constant in worship and service to God. They were completely on fire for the Lord. And when we look at them, they're doing something interesting. With two of their wings, they have six wings, and with two of them, they're covering their eyes, and two of them, they're covering their feet. And this is a sign of humility. Their eyes couldn't look upon God's holiness. Even angels who were created to be in the presence of God couldn't look on the holiness of God. And their feet, their created feet, couldn't stand in the presence of a holy God. Remember when God appears, when Jesus appears in the Old Testament to Moses there as a burning bush? I believe all the offenses, all the theophanies in the Old Testament, whenever God is appearing in the Old Testament, I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in John 1, verse 18, it says, 
No one's ever seen God at any time, only the begotten Son of God who is in his bosom. He has explained him or exegeted him. So no human being's ever seen God the Father. They've seen Jesus, the expression of God, the, the, the revelation of God. But when Jesus appears to Moses there out in Sinai, right, what does he say? Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And then when he appears to Joshua there in Joshua chapter 5, before they're going to go in and, and take Jericho, what does he say? Take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. And these, these seraphs, they're completely aware that they are in the presence of a holy God. This should be kind of a litmus test for us, I believe. Can we believe the things that we listen to, the things that we see, the company that we keep, the things that we say, the things that we touch, the places that we go? Can we bring those into the presence of God? See, these angels, they treated God as holy and they proclaimed the holiness of God. This is becoming harder and harder to do in our society. There's an increasing number of places and things that are an abomination to God in our society, and a number of, and it's becoming increasingly unpopular to talk about the holiness of God. But we need to remember that no matter how defiled our land may become, God is holy, and He's called us to be a holy people and to speak of His excellencies. So, point number three we must remember our world may change, so from the word change, but God never does. God is holy. So from the word change and holy. In verse 3, these seraphs have six wings, two covering their face and two covering their feet are calling out to one another and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here God is Christ, holy. Right? And some people say they see the, the Trinity here, the, the triune nature of God. You know, the God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, and the Holy Spirit is, well, holy. But I, I, I don't think that's what the point here is. I, I think in the Bible we often see uh, repetition like this to emphasize or to make emphasis. You know, if, if we want to really emphasize something today, what do we do? We put it in, like, all caps, or we put, like, six exclamation points after it, or, you know, we highlight it, put it in bold writing, things like that. Well, they didn't have the ability to do that back in the day when they were writing the scriptures. So if they really wanted to emphasize something, they would use repetition. They would repeat it. We see this in other places. For instance, in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, uh, will, uh, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? But then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You catch up there, the calling of Lord, Lord, Lord. They're making an emphatic declaration of Jesus as Lord. They're saying it loud. They're saying it in the open fields. They're saying Jesus is Lord. But there's one problem. Their life doesn't match the way that 
they're saying they would. That's what James says in, in James chapter 2. If any of you say that you have faith but have not works, your faith is dead. If you make a profession that you're a Christian but you have no works, you're deceived is what he's saying. And that's what was going on here. So there's this emphasis on holiness. You know, God's a lot of things, but above all, he is holy. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is love, love, love. Although God is love. But twice in the Bible it says God is holy, holy, holy. Uh, here in Isaiah 6 and again in Revelation chapter 4. That's because above all else, God is holy. All of God's other attributes are modified by his holiness. God is, above all, distinct from everything else because he's the one and only eternal and everything else is his creation. But he calls us to be holy as well. You take Israel, for example. In Leviticus 11:44, it says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And, and the idea here is, is uh, if you read uh, Leviticus, starting in verse 11 you know, through um, 20, uh, it, it's talking about how the children of Israel are going to go into Canaan and possess this land that God has given them, but they're not to be like the people who are living there. The people who are living there are an abomination to God. And so God is saying, hey, you're not to do these things that they're doing. You're to be holy. You're to be separate. You're to be distinct from the people who live in the land. You know, I mean, that's what a lot of these laws are for. You, you read some of these weird laws in the Old Testament, and it's like, why would, why would God care if he mixed two different fabrics together? You know, things like that. Well, the whole point was, that's what the people in the land did, and God wanted them to be different, wanted them to be distinct. And he wants us to be as well. Right? Peter goes on to quote Leviticus to the church. He says, be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. You know that this pursuit of holiness is actually a mark that we are a true Christian, that we're a true believer, that we've been born again? This desire to want to be more and more holy? In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, for if we live according to the flesh, we'll die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The evidence that you are a son of God is that you're led by the Spirit of God, and the way that the Spirit of God is leading you is to mutilate your flesh to put to death your sin nature, to become more and more holy. In the Great Awakening, here in America in the 18th century, uh, a great thing was happening. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he, he, he preached this great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and, and people just started getting saved everywhere. It actually became a, a really popular thing to say that you believe in Jesus. Uh, so everybody was saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. But the pastors are like, hey, there's a problem here. Obviously not everybody is saved, right? And so they started saying, hey, how do we know which ones are real? How do we know the people that are really converted and the ones that are make-believers? And that's when Jonathan Edwards wrote his great treatise called Religious Affections. 
And in this book, it, it, it's all about that. How do I know that I'm really safe? How do I know that I'm born again? And he talks about what are the affections of your heart? What is the desire of your heart? Is it to be holy? Is it to be as close to God as possible? Is it to be uh, to get rid of all the sin in your life? Then you know that you are saved. Right? So, so our desire, our pursuit for holiness is one of the evidence that we are true Christians. You know, the early church, it wasn't persecuted primarily for believing in Jesus. They really weren't. The, the main reason that the Romans persecuted believers in the Roman Empire there in the first century was because they didn't participate in the things of Rome. They, they, they didn't go to the gladiatorial games. They didn't go to the bathhouses. They didn't participate in the orgies and things like that. And so society didn't like them. You know, they're, they're holier than mouths is the idea. And so they persecuted them. And so I ask us, is the way that we live different from the culture around us? Are we being persecuted? If we're really striving for holiness and we're living out holiness, I guarantee you sooner or later we will experience some kind of persecution. This world doesn't like the things of God, and it's increasingly becoming more and more hostile to people with a biblical worldview. And if we're living that out, sooner or later we will experience that. Let me ask you this. If you're not into holiness now, what makes you think that you would enjoy heaven? Or that you would even belong going there. You know, heaven is first and foremost, oh, heaven because God is there. And we're going to be delivered from sin and we'll get to enjoy true holiness. See, I think often people have the wrong idea of heaven. I think people think of heaven as a place that they get to go where you get to indulge your carnal passions without any of the consequences of indulging your carnal passions. That's not heaven. Heaven's heaven because God is there and because we get to be with God and be delivered from sin. I once asked somebody what they're most looking forward to in heaven, and they said, it's good so I could eat all I want and not get fat. I'm like, really? So you want to go to heaven for gluttony? Another guy said, I want to go to heaven because I don't have to do anything all day. I was kind of, I was really, you want to go to heaven to be a sloth. That's not what heaven is. Those are sinful things. Those things belong on earth. Those things don't exist in heaven. Heaven is first and foremost a holy place. It has a holy God. Its occupants are holy. Its occupations are holy. Every single thing about it is holy. And if you want to be there, we need to be holy. We need to pursue holiness. That's what we're going to do for all of eternity is dwell in holiness. You know, our cry really needs to be what Paul's cry in Romans 7 was. Remember Paul wrote Romans 7? Uh, he, he's writing this towards the end of his life. He had been a missionary for over 20 years. He had planted churches, pastored churches. He had written epistles. He, he was like the guy. And in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, myself, serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. If even Paul is saying, hey, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the very things 
I don't want to do. I do, you know, but I'm going to press forward into the other call of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm looking forward to this day when I'm going to be delivered from this. Then, then we need to <laughs> become more holy too. None of us can say we've arrived. But holiness starts with repentance. It, it, it really does. In verse 4, it says, And the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Here's Isaiah in the temple that's filling with smoke. Remember, smoke is a, a manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God. It's, it's God's presence. This temple's being filled with the presence of God, and it's causing even the whole threshold to shake. And, and, and Isaiah is seeing this. And Isaiah, in verse 5, says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Holiness starts with repentance. We, we need a washing. We, we need a, a positional sanctification. And, and that's what Isaiah gets here. You know, we, we, we can't, have, we have no idea who we really are until we see who God is. So we can't understand our own nature. We can't understand our own fallenness, our own corruptness, until we get a good glimpse at the holiness of God. We get a glimpse at the perfection of God. And that's exactly what is happening to Isaiah here. And we see this happening uh, throughout Scripture. Ezekiel, he sees God, and it says he falls down like a dead man. Listen to Job's testimony at the end of Job when God finally appears to him. In Job 42, verses 5 and 6, it says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Before that, he had been like, hey, I want to talk to God. Hey, God, i got some questions for you. There's some things you need to answer. God shows up, he sees God, and he's like, hey, you know, I spoke in ignorance. I repent in dust and ashes. How about Peter? When, when Peter realizes that the Lord is really the Lord, when they bring in that miraculous catch, what does Peter say? Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. How about John in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. When Paul saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he counted everything else as but dung. And here Isaiah is saying the same thing. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He says, Woe is me. Woe means cursed. If you look in the previous chapter, over and over again, Isaiah is saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's cursing everybody for their sin. Now all of a sudden he sees the Lord and he says, hey, woe is me, for I'm a sinful man. I, I have an unclean mouth. And I live amongst the people with an unclean mouth. And I think he understood that more than his mouth was unclean because Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He needed a new heart. But he says that his mouth was unclean. I think that's interesting because he's a prophet of God. 
That's the most sanctified part of his body. That's the part of his body he uses to speak the word of God to people. And he's saying, hey, even the best part of me is unclean. It, it, it's sinful. It needs healing. Number four, uh, throwing the word cheap. There's no such thing as cheap grace. So Isaiah sees God. He realizes he's unclean. He makes that pronouncement. And then in verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You know, thank God he doesn't leave us in that place of uncleanness, that place of being undone. Right? Thank God for his grace. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah realized, hey, I got an unclean mouth. He he confessed it to the Lord, and he was cleansed of all unrighteousness. But God was quick to cleanse that prophet. The second he cried out, hey, I'm undone, I'm a sinful man, the angel is on his way to purge him. That's all it takes. It doesn't take this whole ceremony. There's not all these stages you have to go through. You don't have to, you know, drive through the car wash and get the wax and you know, all of that. No, instantly. He was cleansed. And that's the way that God wants to cleanse us. But notice where the coal came from. It came from an altar. It's a costly coal. This altar really is, it's a picture of the cross, right? Where all healing, all restoration comes from. But the altar was a place of sacrifice. You know, grace and forgiveness, it really cost God everything. Right? God had to bankrupt heaven to be able to save us from our sins. That's what the Bible teaches us. And that really shows the way that God values you, how important you are in God's eyes. Jesus gave this parable where he says that you are like a, a pearl of a great price. That this merchant on a, on a mission finds it. And what does he do? He goes and buries it. And then he goes and sells everything that he has so that he could come back and buy that one pearl. And God's saying that is you. He's willing to give up everything so that he could save you. That's how much he values you and me. But we need to remember this forgiveness, this purging that we got wasn't cheap. It, it cost God everything. But it also has a cost for us. Right? We, we don't get to just be forgiven and it doesn't cost us anything. No, there's a cost to following Jesus. Right? We need to crucify the flesh. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he needs to deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and then follow me. Live the way that I live. But as we do that, we could trust that there's abundant grace. Our, our, our culture, we don't like the idea, hey, deny myself. No, like, 
I want to, you know, that's not popular. You know, crucify my will and live for God's will. That's not popular. But I guarantee you, if you do it, you will be met with an unbelievable amount of grace. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Galatians 2.20. I mean, it's just a really cool verse. But it was even cooler when I noticed it in the King James Version compared to the more modern versions. See, the modern versions say this, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a cool verse. But listen to the way that the original King James has it. It says, I am, present tense, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the modern version says, I have been crucified, and I live by faith in the Son of God. The King James says, I am crucified, and I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now these prepositions, they could be translated either way, depending on the context. Theologically, both are true. And the idea is is this, is when we crucify ourselves, when we crucify our flesh, present tense, we're going to be met with so much grace, we're going to be given the faith of the Son of God. We're going to be given supernatural faith to be able to walk through anything that God has for us. I love that. Right? If we're willing to sacrifice, God is going to move on our behalf. He's going to give us a supernatural faith. But we can't just say that there's grace and live however we want. Right? So, so we sin, that grace may abound, may it never be. You know, First John tells us that if we do that, if we just go on, keep on sinning, and living a lifestyle of sin, that we might not be saved. In 1 John 3, verses 4 through 6, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So we can't treat God's grace as you know, some cheap thing that allows us to keep doing whatever we want. John, Jesus tells us to take the hard road, the narrow door. I think we'd all agree that there's only one way to heaven, that's the narrow door. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me, there's only one way by which you can get to Jesus. Peter says in Acts 4, there's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved. But would we all agree about the hard way? Would we all agree that we need to walk the crosswalk? That you need to conform your life to Jesus' life to get to heaven? Yeah, it's easy to say there's only one name you could confess to get to heaven. But when you talk about walking that narrow road and living the way Jesus did, walking that crosswalk, that's something different. Now all of a sudden you're being legalistic. But that's what the scriptures say. 
don't be one of those ones on the last day. Or <laughs> say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do miracles in your name? Didn't I heal people in your name? No, be one of the people that entered through the narrow door, who took the hard path, who walked the crosswalk. But we also see here with this coal that salvation could be painful. It really can. Think about this. This angel came and took a coal off an altar. This is a burning coal. It's like if you're barbecuing and you've got your charcoal that's glowing red, and he came and touched the prophet's lips, one of the most sensitive parts of his body. And that's what purged him. You know, seeing our sin and the mess we've made of our lives is painful. It said that John Bunyan was in agony over his sin for 18 months before he experienced regeneration. Now, I don't know if that's accurate. I'm not saying God wants you to agonize over your sin for 18 months before he'll regenerate you. But, but I think the idea is, is that he was very aware of how sinful he was and how much he had violated God's law and what that did to him and what he deserved, that he was just broken and grieved over it for a very long time. And salvation could be that way. You know, a lot of it is taking accountability. It's saying, hey, I am a sinner. Yeah, I have blown it. I'm going to, you know, uh, I ain't going to hide that. No, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to be real with it. And I'm going to give it to Jesus. Right? If we hide our sin, there isn't going to be any forgiveness for that, the Bible says. But it's not just painful in that initial stages of getting saved. The ongoing process of sanctification, that process of being saved. The Bible says that we're saved and we're being saved. That is painful as well. In John 15, Jesus compares it to having surgery. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it that, he may, that it may bear more fruit. And surgery, I could attest, is a painful thing. And here, this process of sanctification, Jesus is describing as God literally cutting parts of us off so that we could remain more holy. Point number five, we must be changed before we're commissioned. We must be changed or cleansed before we're commissioned. So throwing cleansed and commissioned. In verse eight, he says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? This is Trinity. And then I said, Here am I, sent me. See, Isaiah was changed when he heard God's word. Or before he heard God's word and before God sent him. And this is the pattern for us. This was the pattern for Jesus' apostles, right? That we need to come to Jesus, we need to be changed by Jesus, and then we can be commissioned by Jesus. In Mark 3, verses 13 through 15, it says, And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, first so that they might be with him. And then he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. They had to be with Jesus. They had to 
start becoming like Jesus before they could go and be commissioned by Jesus. Before Paul could go and start his apostleship, he had to spend three years in Arabia with Jesus. David spent years in the desert before coming king. Joshua and Caleb needed the 40 years in the desert to teach them how to lead, how to be servant leaders before they could take the children of Israel into the promised land. They were mighty enough warriors. They could go in and take the land. The problem is they weren't the kind of leaders God wanted them to be. They needed to be with that people for 40 years to have God's heart for that people so that they could lead them into the promised land. If they would have gone right in, they would have just gone in fighting and gotten so far out in front of everybody that everybody would end up getting devoured by the beasts of the field, the Bible says. They needed to learn that they could only go as fast as the slowest sheep, that they're only as strong as the weakest link. They needed to learn how to lead from the back. That's the general pattern. It's this. It's repentance, grace, time with Jesus, being torn down and built back up, and then being used by God. That's what happened with me. I got saved in a radical way, and then I spent about four years just doing nothing but reading the Bible, just me and God. And then God sent me to Israel and then to Bible college, and then put me into the ministry. That's the pattern. You know, sometimes God will commission people quickly. That's the case here with Isaiah. You know, over 90% of new converts were led to the Lord by someone who had been less a believer for less than a year. So don't think just because you're in this process of being built up by God to be commissioned by God that God can't use you. Most of the people that are getting saved are being people that just met the Lord. And I also want us to think about this. You know, Isaiah wasn't commissioned to go to Australia or to America or to some far-off place. He was commissioned to go to the people right where he was, right there in Jerusalem, in Judea. So who and where is God calling you today? Is he calling you to go to some far-off place on a mission trip? Maybe. Or is he calling you to go into your own backyard? Is he calling you to be a witness for him right here in Orange County? Right? But the thing is, is we need to be on mission. And the one thing that's going to allow us to be on mission and to be successful is to be clearly getting a picture of the Lord Jesus, just to seeing Jesus, having communion with Jesus, being changed by Jesus on a daily basis. And then we'll walk out and we'll reflect Jesus to this world. That's what Paul says. Right, He says that, uh, that we, with an unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. And as we do so, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, being conformed into the image of the Lord. Amen? So God, I do thank you. I thank you for this uh, story, Lord. And I, I thank you that this is in the Bible, that we could see that... Even a holy man like Isaiah, when he comes into your presence, is undone, Lord, and uh, that you meet him with grace, that you change him, and then you commission him to go out and to be your mouthpiece, Lord. And I pray that that would be true of us. I pray that we would be increasingly seeing your glory, seeing a picture of you, being conformed into that image of you, 
and that you would use us in a greater and greater capacity as your witnesses, whether it's here, whether it's in the surrounding regions of America, or if it's in some far-off parts, Lord. We acknowledge that you've sent all of us. You've called all of us. You said that you will make all of us your witnesses. And that you said, hey, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you, Lord. So help us to be these witnesses you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.